my wife uh what did, i don't remember what you said exactly uh about hearing me preach but uh oh that's what it was the boys the boys went back to the class and she said oh so i actually get to listen to you preach this time and i said lower your expectations and she said don't worry that was real encouraging <laughs> but in full transparency uh kevin said to me last week before he preached man i just this is the least prepared i've ever felt to preach and I feel exactly the same way. And I don't know what it was like when you preached the first parable, David, but maybe we should call this the curse of the parables. Uh, cause I don't feel ready this morning. So I say that to say this might be 25 minutes. It might be an hour and 25 minutes. I'm sorry. I don't know, but I do believe I've heard from the Lord and I'm going to do my best to walk us through this parable, but also the context in which we find this parable and my deep desire is that Lord might use me this morning to illuminate the goodness of God and his call to the people of God and that we might hear. So my heart is what David prayed, that I would not be a distraction and you wouldn't hear from Joshua, but that you hear from the Lord this morning, that you would receive it with gladness and that by his spirit we can put it to work. We just finished up the House of Prayer series, like David said, and now we're into the parables. And this is the third one we're going to look at. And I kind of want to do a little bit of work to back up and just kind of impress upon y'all the purpose of Jesus' parables, parables when he teaches. So if you have a handout, um, there's some notes, and I invite you to flip that open and look at that. If you don't have a handout, they're on the back table. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word... Um, we will supply you one, but we're going to be using both of those things this morning. So if anybody needs one of these, throw your hand up and we'll bring one to you. Turn, if you would, to Matthew 13. Look at verse 10. I'm going to read it to us. This was right after Jesus had taught the parable of the sower. The disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So if you're a note taker, the parables of Jesus serve to identify who is a child of God. That passage in Matthew, what did I say, 13, um, Jesus came as the promised Messiah to the Jewish people who were God's chosen people. But it had been prophesied that they would reject him. So that the gospel would then go out to all who would hear and believe. And so it was necessary that the Jews reject Jesus. So he taught in parables so that the people who weren't true Jews Jews who serve God from their heart, people who serve God from their heart, they would reject his teaching. But the same is true today. The parables of Jesus identify who is a child of God, and they do that a couple of ways. There's a difference when a child of God hears a parable and when somebody who is not truly a believer hears a parable. To the believer, the parables instruct and encourage the Spirit of God reveals truth and meaning of the parable to his children. And when they hear that, it motivates them. Do you remember when John the Baptist, when he was still in embryonic form in his mother's womb, when she entered a room where Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, was, John the Baptist, while he was still a forming infant, leapt in his mother's womb. 
by being in the presence of the Messiah, he jumped. Our hearts do the same thing when the Spirit of God dwells in us and we hear truth that is proclaimed about God, about Jesus. Our spirit goes, yes and amen. The Spirit enables the obedience of faith. So, to the believer, the parables instruct and encourage. The Spirit of God reveals truth and meaning to the parable, which motivates them, and then the Spirit enables the obedience of faith. That's Romans 1.5. That's what happens when a believer hears a parable. And it's not like David said, just on a cursory glance. It takes a little bit of work to go down there and mine out of Scripture those deep truths that encourage us, instruct us, motivate us. But something different happens when an unbeliever hears a parable. To the lost, the parables confuse and then frustrate. And here's why. Because the flesh cannot perceive or submit to God's truths. I'll read to you Romans 8. Sorry. I usually last time I preached, I encourage people to leave their phones at home, but I'm heavily relying on mine this morning. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So to the lost, the parables confuse and frustrate as the flesh cannot perceive or submit to God's truth. So that's the difference. So as we go through these parables, as you read the parables, as you hear them preached, pay attention to your reaction to them. If everything just is right over your head and you're like, this doesn't make it clear, I don't understand, I don't understand how this applies to my life, or let's say you do understand what's being taught or preached and it actually discourages your heart, that may be evidence that you need to spend some time in your closet in prayer with God, wrestling for your soul. You need to consider, who do I believe Jesus is, and what has he done for me? Because you may not be operating by faith in him. You may be acting according to the flesh. Whereas, if we go through these parables, and you're encouraged, and you're built up, and you're strengthened, use that as fuel to go harder and pursue harder after Jesus, which is the purpose of, I believe, today's parable all right so matthew 20 let's let's flip there david read us the parable i'm going to give you just a a layman's paraphrase of this parable okay so this guy has a vineyard um let's just say it's time for harvest and he needs to hire some people to bring the harvest in so he goes out and he hires some people standing around looking for work and he negotiates with them there's a back and forth, and he says, all right, well, let's just adjust for inflation and put it in modern terms. All right, you're going to come work in my field. It's going to be a long day. I'll pay you a couple hundred bucks. Okay, sounds good. So the first batch of workers that he goes out and hires first thing in the morning agree to a couple hundred bucks. That's that's a day's wage for a laborer who's going to work 12 hours. A few hours later, three hours later, he goes into the marketplace again. He looks around. He finds some people. They're standing around. They haven't been hired. And he says, all right, um, what are you doing? You're just standing here. And they said, well, nobody's come and hired us. He said, right, well, I, I need some more work in, in my vineyard. Do you want to come work for me? And they say, sure. And he said, whatever's fair, that's what I'll pay you. So their their option in that moment, like, they can continue standing all, there, all day there and make nothing, or they can go work. And so they say, whatever's fair, that, that's cool with us. He does that after three hours. The, the Jewish calendar or the daily timekeeping was 12 hours a night, 12 hours a day. So he does that at hours three. He does it again at hours six. And he does it again at hours nine. So the first people were working literally all day long, 12-hour day. Some get hired to work nine hours. Some get hired to work for six hours. Some get hired to work for three hours. And those people are hired with the understanding that whatever's fair, that's when I'm going to get paid. And then... Like, you look at the horizon, the sun's going to be down in about 30 minutes. So we've got about an hour left of work. He goes out again and hires more people. And I, part of me was like, what, what a weird way 
like I, I'm a business owner. What a weird way to uh, accomplish your goals. But sometimes when with agriculture, there's crops that are completely destroyed if there's going to be a frost coming. And so you're, you're kind of like, you have no option but to scramble and do everything you can to get the harvest in. I'm just assuming that's kind of what the situation was. He went out in the morning and he hired some people. And as the day went on, maybe the temperature kept dropping. And towards the end of the day, he was like, oh no, if I don't get this harvest in, it's all going to be ruined. So that, maybe that's the motive for the, for the vineyard master there. But then when the day is over, he gathers everybody and says, all right, let's square up. Let's pay you guys. But he starts with the people who got hired at 11th hour, just one hour of work, and he gives those people $200. And then the people who work three hours, he gives them $200. And the people who work six hours. And the guys who are out there working all day long are watching this and like, sweet, dude, like one hour, 200 bucks. That means if I work 12, I'm going to make make over a couple, couple grand today. But they get up there and they get their $200 and they are frustrated. If I had known I could have just slept in and gone down to the market like this evening and still made 200 bucks, that would have been so much better. And they're frustrated. And they actually say something to the vineyard worker or the vineyard master. And his response is beautiful. I am doing you no wrong, he says in verse 13. Did you not agree to work for me for a denarius or a couple hundred bucks? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I want or what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So my takeaway from that is that it does not take much to incite envy in the heart of man. Even when he is treated fairly. It does not take much to incite envy in the heart of a man, even when he's treated fairly. Those dudes who work for all day had agreed and negotiated at the beginning of the day to work for a day's wages, which was fair. The other people didn't even negotiate. They just said, whatever's fair, that's what you can pay us. So God, so the vineyard master was really generous with those folks, but because he was generous with them, the people who had negotiated for their wage, suddenly felt like, oh, man, I should have negotiated different. And it makes them envious of those who work less than them, even though that's the very thing that they had agreed to. That exposes our hearts. And I don't know what situations you encounter with your work or your life or your family or your siblings, but it doesn't take much when somebody when something good happens to somebody else and we didn't have that same goodness or blessing for us to be jealous of and and feel like somehow we've been gypped. But it's because we have a worldly mindset when we think like that. The reality is God rewards his workers. God does. He rewards his workers. But the measure and generosity of him doing so is seated firmly in his sovereignty. God's ways are higher than our ways. It doesn't always make sense to us why he does the things he does, but he does reward his workers. He promises that he will do that. But it's up to him how that looks like, what form it takes, what he asks of us or asks us to endure. If you remember, there's this interchange with the disciples where... After Jesus has been resurrected and he, and he appears, appears to the disciples on the, on the beach, he's cooked him a meal. Peter had been fishing, hadn't caught anything. And then this guy on the beach says, well, throw your, throw your nets like this. And they do and they catch so many fish, the boat begins to sink. And then Peter realized, oh, that's, that's the risen Lord. And then on the beach there, Jesus restores Peter, and he asks him three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And then he tells him, he foreshadows by way, by what means Peter will die, that he'll be led away, likely to be martyred. And then Peter says, well, what about him? And points to John. But he says, what, what business is it of yours? What if he, what if he stays alive until I return? 
you feed my sheep. We have this tendency to say, well, what about this person? What about that? That's, that's our natural tendency, and that's what Peter, who tends to expose the heart of man really well because he's such a transparent person and very quick to speak in, in the Gospels. The reality is God is sovereign over our lives. And he might ask you to navigate the difficulty of having cancer. But he might not ask that of anybody else in your circle. And you might have the tendency to say, well, what? why me? God might generously grant that all of your children believe in Christ and walk in fellowship with him. And you might, that might be a beautiful thing. Or you might have that none of your children are believers in walking with the Lord. And you might look at your friend who didn't even raise their kids that well, but all of their kids are in Christ. And you might say, what the deal? what's the deal with that? God is sovereign. And sometimes there are bitter pills we have to swallow with that reality. But the truth is he does reward his workers and putting our faith in him is not an ill-founded thing to do. He is at minimum fair. And when it doesn't seem like he's fair, the reality is he has things that he's doing and there's things that he's accomplishing even in the difficult things that happen in our lives. God rewards his workers. The measure and generosity of him doing so is seated firmly in his sovereignty. But here's what the people of God are called to no matter what. We are called to excellence. Look, if you would, in Luke 12. i got to open my notes again. Luke 12, verse 48. Ignore that first chunk. Look at 48b. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. As the people of God, we look to a Jesus who is the Son of God, who was sent to obey perfectly, and then for him to obey perfectly, that also meant that he had to lay his life down and be crucified in the most brutal manner of execution so as to take on the punishment of sin of all who would believe in him. We have been given much. We have been given the Son of God, a gift and a ransom for us. And because that is what we have been given, much is required of those who would take up the name of Jesus and follow him. Much is required of us. We are called to excellence. We are not called to be vineyard workers who kind of just just halfway go about the things that we do and it's like, well, these guys were only working a few hours. I'm just going to I'm going to take a break over here. The foreman's not around. I'm going to go take a nap behind that tree. We are called to excellence. But I know in my own life, in my own heart, there is this tendency, there's this pervasive thing to confuse excellence and righteousness. We must not confuse excellence for righteousness. Jesus alone is righteous. Jesus alone is righteous. He perfectly obeyed all of the commands of God. He fulfilled all of the prophecies spoken about him. Jesus alone was able to deny himself perfectly, to be tempted by the devil himself, but stand fast and firm and never, never, never waver. But to trust in his Father completely, obey every commandment, fulfill every prophecy, do all the things he was supposed to do and perfectly establish what it looks like to obey God's law. Jesus was perfect. And then he laid his life down, a sacrifice for sin. And it says that he was proved to be the Son of God because he was raised from the dead. Because when an, a perfect person endures punishment for sin, death cannot hold him. So Jesus rose from the dead, proved to be the Son of God. He alone 
is righteous. There's this Psalm, Psalm 24, that talks about who is, who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in the holy place. And then there's this experience, I think, with Isaiah, where he gets caught up into heaven, and, and the question is asked, who is worthy to open this scroll? And the answer in both cases is the Lord of hosts. He's the only one worthy, and that is, that is Jesus. He alone is righteous. And the beauty of the gospel is that we can experience righteousness in him through faith. The crazy mystery of the gospel is that by looking to Jesus and seeing his life and obedience and his sacrifice on the cross and saying, well, he has told me that if I trust in him, he will take away my sin and he will make me right with him and he will let me partake in that righteousness, I believe in that. And that's what I'm a, that's what I'm a long for and hope in for this feeling in my soul that something isn't right between me and God. I'm going to trust that that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he did and that he will infer that on my behalf. That makes you right with God. That's called justification. Looking to Jesus, you are saved. Believing in him. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life, God will wash it away. He'll, it says he'll take your sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west, which means it's an infinite amount. That's how far away God will take your sin as he looks at you. He won't see you in your screw-ups. He won't see you in your half-heartedness. He'll see his son in you. That is righteousness. And that alone is achieved by looking to Jesus and trusting in him, believing in him, believing the gospel, participating in the unity of the triune Godhead by just believing in Jesus. It sounds absurd, and it is. The same way when the Israelites were dying because venomous snakes were biting them and they were dying in the wilderness, God told Moses, make this bronze serpent and stick it on a stick and then hold it up. And any of the Israelites who've been bitten by venomous snakes, if they just look at that, they won't die from the venom. They'll be fine. That is nonsense. I love survival stuff and spend the time in the woods and doing that, you will not find make a bronze serpent and look at it as a thing to do if you ever get bit by a rattlesnake. That's not what the survival guides say. That's absurd. But the gospel's absurd. God entered into his own creation and then subjected himself to all the difficulties in his creation that have been caused by sin. And then he bids anybody who would come to come and be perfect by believing in him. And that is righteousness. But we have this tendency to confuse excellence with righteousness. Sometimes in my heart, I think that I got to do these things so that I can be right with God. But the reality is the only thing that makes me right with God is Jesus and looking to him. And maybe I've done that a thousand times. And maybe I've screwed up a thousand times. And I have. But the calling of the scriptures is to do it again. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Run to him. Flee to Christ. Rest in his completed work. Don't think that I need to strive in order to achieve some sort of right relationship with God. That's not how it works. He's done everything and all he says is just come sit at my feet. Bring your concerns and your filth to me. You get it? But people of God are called to excellence. Jesus alone is righteous, and through faith in him we can experience righteousness, but we are called to excellence. Let me tell you what that looks like. We are called to excellence, and in self-denial, I reference Matthew 10.38 here, which says, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So I talked about God's generosity, and sometimes it feels like you are be, you are given a bitter hand. Self-denial is receiving that from him. Accepting it as from his hand. That he has purposes in it. So whether you have a sin that easily entangles you, like a temptation, and you just cannot seem to shake it, or maybe you've had tragedy. Or maybe part of your story is really awful things were done to you. Whatever it is, God has called you to receive it as from his hand and to live life trusting in him. 
that what he has given you has been from him and he has purposes in it. And what he is going to give you, whether it be good or difficult, is from him. So receive it from him. He is sovereign. He knows you. He knows what you need. He will see you through it. So deny yourself. Take up your cross. Receive it from him and keep going. We're called to excellence. So in self-denial, in patience, in suffering, First Peter 4.19 is what I wrote. This is what that says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing what? While doing good. So, we experience righteousness through Jesus alone by faith in him, but we are, we experience excellence, the excellence of a good servant through self-denial, patience and suffering, and obedience. First John 5, 2 and 3, it says this. By this we know that we love the, sorry, sorry. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Something happened to me while I was getting ready to preach a sermon where I realized that when I think, and I see in the Bible, like, obey the commandments of God, I really tend to think about the, the, the moral law, the, the, the Ten Commandments and the going to church and not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together and reading the Bible and doing the things you're supposed to do. That's what I think of when I read, as a default, obey God's commandments. I think that's dumb. I think the, the, the most helpful thing to think about when you see keep the commandments is to love God and to love others the way Jesus loved you. And he, he even says all of the law and prophets is summed up in those two things. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus, when he washed his disciples' feet right before he was going to be crucified, right after the Last Supper, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another the way I have loved you. So it challenged you. When you see the word commandments, just think about those two things. Loving God and loving other people to the degree that Jesus has loved you. Let that be the first thing you think of when you see God keep commandments. So now that I've said that, let me reread this first John passage. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. We are called to excellence through self-denial, patience and suffering, obedience. And Titus 2.14, devoting ourselves to good works. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I confuse excellence and righteousness in my own thinking all the time. This is helpful to me. Righteousness is only through faith in Jesus. That's it. Excellence is also through faith in Jesus, but also through your pursuit of excellence. It's both. So I... Nick texted me. He was very patient with me. He texted me for a sermon title. And I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, I settled on this one. From each according to their ability to each according to his grace, which is a play on Karl Marx's communist imperative, which which said, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Matthew 20 is not a parable advocating for socialism, even though that's what it sounds like. That's not what it is. Namely, because in socialism, the distribution is dependent on the government, whereas this is the calling that we have as believers, is to 
share and give according to God's grace, according to His provision, according to His Spirit moving in, in you and telling you what to do. Not an outside government agency telling you what to do. But I settled on that, on that, on that title because God gives us not according to our need. He gives us according to His grace. And we do have great need. Namely, to be reconciled with Him and, and be made right and be in, enabled to obey Him. But that's the promise of Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesied that one day the Spirit of God would come and then He would purify us and that His Spirit would write the law of God on our hearts so that we are able to obey Him. So from each according to their ability, I, there's something about that I really like. I think that everybody here who trusts in Jesus, God is calling you to serve him as much as you possibly can according to your ability. That you are to live in, in self-denial, receiving suffering, obedient, and dedicating yourself to good works. That's what he's calling you to. He's calling each one of you to live out the gospel according to your ability. Now, we know in Romans it says, if by the Spirit you put to death of the, the deeds of the body, you will live. So none of this do we do on our own strength. But it does require our intention, our commitment, our, dr- our drive, our pushing, our not giving up. But all of this is because we have been given much according to God's grace. So we're called to excellence, which we live out by trying really hard, pushing, enduring, committing. And if it's in the flesh, it's useless. But if it's by the Spirit, I believe we become beautiful workers in God's vineyard who are exceedingly productive. So we need to rest in Jesus' completed work regarding righteousness, but we need to work harder to deny ourselves and serve other people regarding what he is calling us to in him, but all of that is still by his grace, by the Spirit enabling us to do it. So here's here's a little quote, and I feel like this might be helpful to bring this home. John Bloom said, We tend to have an upside-down definition of greatness. Um, let's just trade that for excellence. The measure of our superiority to others instead of our love to them. Our meritocracies have a powerful tendency to appeal to the sinful, selfish, self-exalting part of us. So meritocracy is a system where those who are able to do a lot and achieve a lot or accomplish a lot, rise to the top. So think about the Olympics. The fastest runner in the world is the one who wins the gold medal because he has this incredible ability. And not only does he have incredible ability, but usually the people who are in the Olympics are the people who have an incredible natural ability, but also an insane work ethic. So the fastest marathon run in the world can run a marathon in under two hours, which means he can run it over 13 miles an hour for two hours. Probably nobody in this room can run 13 miles an hour more than 10 seconds. That's not an exaggeration. He can do it for two hours. He has an insane natural ability, but also he's been running his entire life, and he's the best in the world. We think about greatness naturally like that. That's what a meritocracy is. You're the best, you work the hardest, you rise to the top. In God's kingdom, he flips everything upside down. And those who are great in God's kingdom are those who not, by their ability, do really, really awesome things for God. But those who love others and love God are the ones who are the greatest. That's what he told the disciples. So I've said all of this, right? Matthew 20. Now let me take us, if you would let me, and look at the whole context of these few chapters in Matthew 20. Jesus teaches this parable immediately after the rich young man comes and says, 
What must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. He says, well, I've I've done all Well, what commandments? And And Jesus tells him a few, and he says, well, I've done all those. And Jesus says, well, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the rich young man went away really discouraged because he owned a lot of stuff. I think that that interaction was to show that one of the commandments was to summarize, love your neighbor as yourself. He was not willing to obey that commandment. He wasn't. Because when Jesus told him to go sell it all, he became discouraged. Remember I said the parables serve to identify the people of God? That showed a heart that valued things more than people. So he went away discouraged because that teaching was tough teaching. Then Peter observes this interaction. He's like, the rich man goes away, and then Peter's like, hey, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. What are we going to get out of that? And Jesus says, look, man, everybody who does that, who leaves father, mother, house, possessions, they're going to receive a hundredfold back. Which is, so Peter's like, all right, that's sweet, man. I'm going to get a lot out of this. And then he says, but many who are first will be last, but the last will be first. So he sticks that in there and then immediately teaches this passage, this parable about the vineyard workers. So that's the immediate preceding context. Then what happens after he teaches on the parable is James and John's mother goes to Jesus. And she says, hey, uh, since they, since my two sons have left uh, everything to follow you, and you've said that the disciples who did that are going to sit on their on thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel, how about James and John, my two sons, sit on your left and right? So even like being told about the reward of God, there's that envy that comes in, and it's like, cool, we get to sit on thrones. Well, can I sit on the best thrones? <laughs> Right? But he asked this question. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And in ignorance, they respond, we are able. That's what James and John say. And he says, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant. It's for those whom has been prepared by the Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's the, the worldly system of meritocracy. That's what worldly greatness look like, looks like. That's what excellence according to the world looks like. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what excellence looks like in the kingdom of God. And so when I said that we need to strive and work hard to be excellent servants of God, that's what that looks like. Self-denial and considering others more important than ourselves. Excellence in God's kingdom isn't achieving greatness and building a big company and making millions of dollars. It's loving people more than you love yourself. It's putting people's desires above your needs. That's what excellence looks like, becoming a servant of all. I told some family this week, I'm, Jennifer and I are watching Gabriel very closely because we feel like we've seen some evidences of grace, like he may have been converted. And one of the things that happened this week was I said to him, guys, I said to the boys, the way you love Jesus is by taking care of your brothers and caring more about what they want than what you want. That's what loving God is for you guys in in this stage of your life. And then later that night or the next day, I said, Gabriel, you and Jake can go play Nintendo. You get to play first. And 30 seconds later, he came back to me. He was like, uh, can Jake play first? 
And I said, why? And he said, because I want, I want him to have the nice thing. I want to, I want to serve my brother. Which that's not something that comes natural to, certainly not to the Dean boys. I don't know about your children, but it certainly is not the normal conversation in our house. But when he did that, I began to wonder, like, wow, like the Lord, like that's, that's unusual. So we're, we're looking for more evidences of things like that. Because he responded to instruction from the word and acted on it, which is, I'll just tell you, I got four boys who are a lot like me and that's not normal in my house. But it was encouraging. By the way, James and John, James was the first to be martyred. And John lived longer than all the other disciples, but it was a bitter life for him. A lot of suffering, being exiled, being cast out. So they said, we're able, and, and they did drink Jesus' cup. But one worked for a few hours and was taken, and one worked through the heat of the day. Alright, so that's the immediate context. The rich young man, and then disciples who constantly argued who was going to be the greatest among them. Let's go out and even a little farther, okay? So some more context. Before the rich young man comes to talk to Jesus, that passage right before that, Matthew 19, 13 says this, Then children were brought to him, that he may lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus Christ, the Messiah, laid hands on these children, and went away. And then right after the passage about James and John's mom, Jesus heals two blind men. The crowd rebuked the blind men, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So the passage, the parable, is working in the vineyard. The immediate context is the rich young man who didn't like what he was told because it exposed his heart that loved things more than people. And then James and John's mother want them to be the greatest in the great. But the calling on their lives was to suffer, to be killed quickly, or to endure a long period of serving God throughout a long life. And Jesus shows us what this is supposed to look like. At the beginning, he bids little children come to him. He's not too important. He's not too busy for the little children. And nor, at the end, is he too great to stop and heal out of pity those who are the least in that society. And all of this looks like the middle of this passage. Right after the parable of the vineyard, it says this. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, verse 17, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Look at your handout. Look at that first passage on the front that we started our service with. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourself. I love that Kevin left out the word only because it's not in the original manuscript. Let each of you not look only to his own interest. That's not what it says. It says, let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. That word only and also are not in the originals. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about James and John's mother's request. 
In some of the other Gospels, it says that James and John came and asked. It probably was all three of them approached Jesus individually. They considered, well, maybe I won't be just like Jesus, but I'll be right there on his right and on his left. That's not how Jesus thought. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but instead he emptied himself, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what is the reward of that? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. My encouragement to you is to look to Jesus, to know that in him you have perfect, complete, eternal, lasting righteousness. And then my encouragement to you is deny yourself. Receive the suffering God places in your life as directly from Him. Devote yourself to prayer and to good works. Make your life's work serving the people around you. Exhaust yourself in doing good to others. Look for ways that you can sacrifice for somebody else. Give up things that you don't need. Work harder to make Christ look beautiful. Be wary of doing that in your flesh. And be really worried about doing it so that you might be in good standing with God because that's not how it works. Don't confuse excellence with righteousness. But strive to be an excellent, hard-working servant and know that the worst-case scenario for you is that God treats you fairly. But we know from Scripture that what God has in store for those who serve Him and love Him is more than you can even imagine. The treasures of Christ are unsearchable. And I believe one of the reasons that eternal life is is eternal is that it takes that long to explore all the facets of God's goodness, His character, His bigness, His wonderfulness. You can't just take 10,000 years and study God and see all there is to see. It takes eternity to experience all that He has. And that's what's in store for those who trust in Him and continue on the path that is narrow and difficult at times and lonely, but it's good. And he rewards his workers. And he rewards them more than you can imagine. And it is easy to become complacent. Like Kevin talked about last week. It's easy to become lazy. It's easy to become discouraged. It's easy to forget the promises of God. But what I want from us, what I want for me, what I want you guys to hear this morning... is that he calls us to serve him and work in his vineyard. And lay down our lives doing so. That we pursue excellence and greatness, and it doesn't look like the worldly's version of that. It doesn't mean that you're going to be highly exalted in this life. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to like you. It doesn't mean that people will sing your praises on social media. It might mean the opposite of all those things. But at the right time, God will glorify you. And the craziest mystery of the gospel and the promises for the believers is that one day we will partake in the union and the love between God the Son and God the Father. And he who is perfect, who knew no sin, will share his glory with his servants. And I don't have a clue how awesome that is. And I could spend 20 hours trying to describe it to you, and I wouldn't even come close. So worship team, come on up. 
And I will close us, I will close my sermon in prayer, asking him to stir our affections and to cause us to recommit ourselves to serving him. And in a minute, we'll have prayer partners. And if the Lord has been tugging on your heart, calling you to believe in him, to trust in him for righteousness, come talk and pray about that. And if as I've been talking and as you've read the word and as you've looked at the handout and as you filled these things out, if you get a sense that, you know what? We've been saving for that vacation, but I, I wonder if we're supposed to take that money and give it to that person who has that need. Come wrestle with that, with the Lord in prayer. And listen to what he will tell you to do. We are called to serve him, and we do that by serving other people. So wrestle and respond to that message over the next few minutes. Listening to what he will tell you to do and then committing yourself to do it. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son. We look to you for our righteousness. You are the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we trust there's nobody who can come be reconciled to you except through the blood and the work of Jesus. We also know that we, as long as we call this place our home, we struggle with this flesh. Paul said in Romans that he finds this law at work in his members that even though his spirit has been redeemed, and he desires to do what is good. His flesh is right there, hindering that process. That is an active struggle we all have until the day that you come and make us like you and take away the corruptible and give us incorruptibility. That you take away the mortal and give us immortality. We will struggle with that. But I pray, Lord, that this morning we've heard from you. We have hearts that are steadfast in committing to spend the rest of our days working in your vineyard, serving others, considering others more important than ourselves, of denying ourselves, Help us to commit to enduring all things. Help us, Lord, to be devoted to both prayer and to good works so that when we arrive at your kingdom, we know that we have exhausted ourselves doing the work that you have called us to do. That is why you have redeemed us by faith and not by works. You've redeemed us for the purpose of walking in good works that we might glorify you in our lives. Teach us, instruct us, and I pray, Lord, that your spirit would enable us to walk these things out today and this week. And may we grow in them and Encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching in Jesus' name.